reliability webinar and today we're going to talk about reliability as a process and part of this process is having a backup which I didn't have so I ended up with two minutes to go and my computer froze and for whatever reason so I'm keeping my fingers crossed as I advance slides it'll keep working um, so we'll see what happens um, some things work like magic and some things sometimes don't and uh we're experiencing that firsthand once again all right thanks everybody i'm glad to be back let's see if i can advance the slides now as many of you know um, i spent a lot of time in my career working with other teams in either as inside at hewlett-packard and working with the various divisions that made a whole range of products from calculators, the printers, the supercomputers and servers and pretty much everything in, in between. And I saw a lot of different approaches to how an organization creates a reliable product. And some obviously were better than others. And one of the worst was just random. They, they really didn't pay attention to it in a coherent way at all. It was something that just happened. And so there's, um, there are programs out there that, and I suspect you, the folks on, on this event uh, and people that watch the recording are probably not in a totally random event uh, situation. You might be. And what I mean by that is that the program director, the engineering directors, the engineering teams, the design teams, the management teams really don't talk about reliability it just happens it's kind of a byproduct of everything else they do without any measurements or emphasis or or feedback systems or things like that now of course there's variations of what i mean by totally random yet it's not it's it, it doesn't have to be a focus or a priority it's just that it doesn't inner consciousness as something that you could actually do something about. And there's there ain't a good number of examples that it can, comes to mind, and I'll leave it as hopefully you're not in one of those. And I think you would know it if you were. Now, some of them are fixed, and I'm not sure that this is any better. Somewhere along the line, somebody said, oh, we need to do this kind of test, or we need to do this kind of activity, or we need to do this kind of estimate, or we need to do these 10 things. We saw it in a book someplace, and we need to do these these 10 activities. And it's they do it every time. And it may have evolved because somebody came in and said, hey, for this program, let's do these five things. We'll do an FMEA, we'll do a HALT test, Halt, we'll run a couple of accelerated life tests, we'll do some environmental stress screening, and we'll we'll create a block diagram. And it worked. It actually worked well that first time. Going from nothing to having some focus on it is kind of like that, um, there was a factory way back when where they were trying to measure productivity and they, they turned the lights up. They added more lights to the system. And they wanted to see if better lighting would actually improve productivity. And they did. And then they turned the lights off and the productivity went up again. And it was mostly because somebody was measuring them. 
measuring productivity so that they paid attention to improving what they were doing, doing it faster. A fixed system provides that phenomena the first time because you're trying it and it was a success. And somebody said, well, that worked, let's do it again. And now it's not as new or novel. And after three or four cycles of that, it's very unlikely that it's adding any value whatsoever. It's just a, another part of the checklist that needs to be done to get through the day and get through the program. And it really doesn't help much at all. So those are two styles of dealing with reliability in organizations. And there are other, others that we could probably name and, and sort out that really don't work all that well. And they may have temporary benefits or they may get lucky once in a while, but they're generally not useful in the long run. Now, the, the third group I'm going to call evolved, and I could use lots of different words here, but it's, it's a reliability program that realizes that no one size fits all, that we have to do this in a way that meets the current requirements, meets the current situation, builds on current strengths, fills, you know, it, uh, helps us get over the gaps that we have and the problems that are facing us, helps us answer the questions that need to be answered. It's not a random process. Uh, from an outside observer, it may look like that because we're no two uh, plans actually look alike. We, Yet the program continues to deliver highly reliable products. That part stays pretty constant. Yet what we focus on within each program depends on that particular program in current circumstance. And so I chose the word evolve partly because it, it also is not static. You don't do it once and then repeat, and you don't set up the plan once and then just execute. No, you continue to evolve the plan as the circumstance uh, arises. You know, for example, it, it, I've been in a, in a program where the, the key vendor for one of the key components decided they were exiting that part of the market. And it was part way into the development of the program. And it was like, oh, well, we don't have that part anymore. We need to do something different. And so they brought in a different vendor and a slightly different technology that they didn't really have a lot of experience with. Well, that wasn't addressed in the original plan is, well, how reliable is this new approach, this new solution that they're proposing? Well, the plan itself was outdated the second it was, you know, the ink dried on it basically. And keeping that in mind, it says, all right, well, this is a new priority. And what are we not going to do uh, such that we can address this one? And it became a discussion in setting priorities and, and allocating resources in a slightly different way. And in the better programs I've worked with in the, and been involved with and have witnessed is that that evolution of the plan continues might not happen every week, that would be pretty disruptive, yet as major elements of the circumstances, the situation change, well, the plan should adjust to that, assess it and, and, and determine whether or not there's some change to what needs to be done. 
Now, that kind of plan is very resilient. It's very uh, conscious of what's going on. It's not, oh, go do reliability over there someplace and come back and tell us how it went. It's part of the process. And it doesn't require a reliability team or a reliability engineer. It, I've seen him in uh, very good reliability programs that had no reliability professional. Yet the team itself had been trained and, and taught how to do this across electrical, mechanical engineers, and so on, that they were able to continuously do this risk assessment and adjust their approach to what information they were going to generate with all of these different reliability activities and tools. And so that's what I would like us to aim to. And so I'm going to uh, outline a process uh, that may be familiar to some of you. Uh, I know I've talked about bits and pieces of it over the years, um, yet it should work. So this is a rhetorical question. I don't need you to tell me which of those three groups you're in. Maybe there's other ways to do this. Um, but do you, rhetorically, do you have a, a guiding principle or a process that you use to know how you spend the resources you have available to deal with reliability topics and issues and come and questions and so on. So if you don't have one of those, that's that's really the, the place to start. All right. So let me go to the first step in this process. We need to know where we're going. And Carl and I uh, talked about this quite a bit. And part of it is that it's nice to have a reliability goal for your product, for your the project that you're working on. Yet that project rarely exists separate from the organization. That includes marketing and, and a whole family of products and a you know a roadmap of where we're going with different products and what markets we're going to be in and so on and so on. And it's much larger typically, than just one project, one product. So the vision is really found by asking that embarrassing question to one of the senior managers, or better, the owner of the company, or the CEO, or the general manager, or, you know, as a minimum, the director level type people, and say, hey, what's the plan where are we going with reliability? How does the performance of our products fit into what we want to achieve in the long term? What's our five-year plan? Where do we want to be in five years? It's kind of that interview question. Where do you see yourself in five years? Well, where do we see this company with respect to its reliability performance of our products and services five years from now? Now, some people will have thought that through and have a, a clean, clear answer. And some people will be deer in the headlights and had never thought about it, which is a, a sign that you probably need to ask a couple more questions to help them form a vision going forward. And it the vision is always in balance with all the other things that we do in creating a sequence of products and bringing solutions to the market. And that whole process provides the the boundaries, the the interchange, the 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 uh, 
priorities, set of priorities, because the vision for reliability doesn't stand alone. Where are we going in customer service? Where are we going in customer satisfaction? Where do we want to be uh, with cost, with pricing, with the market share, and so on? So reliability is going to be a bit maybe a part of those things as a vehicle to achieve those things, or it may be a standalone. But understanding that really clearly is a key piece to for us to even get started with creating a reliability program and supporting projects that want to create reliable products. See, I got a comment here. One program manager wanted me to list a fixed set of reliability tests for the prototype to pass. Well, that's cool. If the easiest way to get everything to pass is just don't run anything or just leave them on the bench and don't turn them on. And, and I'm glad you hesitated, resisted. I told them that if the plan had to change based on the context of recent failures and perceived weaknesses, hearing the concept of evolving reliability program reinforces my approach. You're very welcome, Brent, and good luck, you know, helping your team understand that reliability is not just the you know, let's go throw something in the chamber and see what happens. It's a very deliberate selection of what we do in order to, you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in order to add value, it's kind of our bigger picture of what we're doing. It actually has to make a difference. The starting place, though, is having a very clear picture of where we're going with uh, as an organization, as a team, what are we trying to achieve? And is reliability a key essential piece to that? Is it a subset of that? Is it a, you know, don't get too low in reliability performance. Otherwise it'll help, it'll harm other things we're trying to do. What, where does it fit in and where are we going? And that's from a corporate level, from the organizational level, from the program level, as I like to call it, which is multiple projects. So where's our family of products? Where are they trying to, to, to achieve with respect to reliability? That's the first step. We got to know where we're going and what's the you know context of why we're going there. So that's a key piece. That allows us to set goals. Now, one of my pet peeves is when I get to an organization and they say, oh, yeah, we, we use one. They use MTVF, which those that have been on any of my podcasts or webinars know that that's just, we don't do that here. It's not reliability. And there's other webinars and other um, discussion on that. But they said, oh, we have a goal. We need to be X. We need to be very reliable or we need five years or we need X, Y, Z, you know, criteria. Right? How do you measure that? And they, uh, um, uh, well, you know, uh, we don't know how to measure it. I was reminded in a discussion just the other day that one team I worked with is they had a, a quality department that would tag every one of the uh, requirements in the engineering specifications document, engineering requirements document. So if it needed to weigh less than five pounds, they'd put a tag on it, and that the Somewhere in the program, when the design was getting finalized, they would go weigh it. And it was over five pounds, they wouldn't sign off on it. So either the requirements had to change or they needed to make it lighter. And they would have hundreds and hundreds of these requirements tagged, except for the reliability ones. And 
can anybody guess why they weren't measuring reliability? What would be a thing there? And I see a comment from, and one way to think about, this is from Brian. One way to think of reliability program is risk reduction. Yep. And I think uh, Greg Hutchins would certainly agree with that. Risk is dynamic and will evolve as the program and product are developed. Yep, exactly. We find things out. We learn things. We find strengths. We find weaknesses and so on. I totally agree, Brian. And, uh, you know, uh, Greg is, and I have been talking for years and he generally talks about risk and risk management type stuff. And he's been trying to convince me that risk was the future for reliability, which to a large degree, I, I agree. All right. So this organization was not tagging and requiring a measurement of reliability because they didn't know how. They couldn't look at a product and walk up to it with a ruler and say, well, how reliable are you? Or they couldn't put it on a scale. They, they couldn't throw it in a chamber and know that it would be a meaningful result. So they didn't really know how to do that. So we did two things. First is we set a for the, the proper reliability goal with all four elements in it. What's this thing supposed to do? So that we know what a failure is. And where do we want it to use and how often is it used, the environment? And then the couplets, the probability of success and durations. And we would set one for out of box for its warranty period and for its expected useful life. How long would customers expect to use this? And there, it's another pet peeve of mine is somebody then said, well, what about confidence intervals on these? Well, it's a goal. The goal is for the every product. It's for the population. There's no need for confidence intervals unless you're doing a subset to estimate it. That's when we get into that. The goal itself is like a requirement. It's like it should be less than five pounds. There's no confidence interval on less than five pounds unless you go out and measure 20 of these units and you could calculate what's the estimate of that, that mass that you're trying to estimate. So part of it is recognizing that a goal for a program, a reliability goal, is a requirement, and it really should be a requirement. Let's see. Got another comment here from uh, Kushik, I think, if I'm pronouncing that right. As M.R. Bose once famously said, he could, he could have got fired multiple times if his, if his company was run by MBAs. Well, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of uh, lost heartstrings for MBAs. And I faced similar situation when the program manager asked me to pick only one or two reliability tests that the pro product needed to pass because they didn't have time or money to conduct a comprehensive reliability testing. That puts you in a difficult spot as a reliability engineer because you see the multiple different failure modes and mechanisms that need verification. Yeah, that, that's very, very true. Now, we're going to talk a little bit how to get out of that dilemma. So that's a really good question because I, I, I do have some information on, on how to get out of that. Because it's not about you and it's not about what we see. It's not about what we understand. And part of your comment reminds me that I often joke that it's difficult to get on an airplane as a reliability engineer, especially when the aircraft is older than my kids. It's, um, although it's the safest form of travel, uh, and I know all those things, it's still, it's a lot of things can go wrong. And I try not to think about it too much. 
But anyway, back to the goals. Once we know where the vision is and where we're going, our goals can align with that vision. If we want to be the most reliable in our market compared to our competitors, well, we need the information of how good are they, and then we need to set a goal that's as good or better than them, right? If we want a goal that meets customer satisfaction uh, and maintains it, well, where are we now? And what is that? How is that going to evolve over time? So the goal is not set in a vacuum. It's set in context of what's the vision for the organization. Will this goal support us going towards that vision? And in the context of this particular product, this particular market, this particular set of expectations and so on, how do we create and craft a set of goals that will inform the development team of what we're trying to achieve? Give us a target, essentially. And this is at each project, and you might do it as, as a, a, at system level, and 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 we can get into details about how do you do apportionment. Uh, uh, Chris Jackson did a really nice apportionment one the other day, or a couple weeks ago. Um, but the idea is is that we need to set a specific, complete, reliability goal, and and break that down in a meaningful way so that it informs our organization and and every individual in it what we're trying to achieve, where we're going. The next step, the second step after understanding the vision and the goal is to understand what are the barriers to achieving that goal. Does our organization have all the skills and capabilities and equipment and assets and knowledge that we're ready to go? We know what to do, we know how to do it, and we can achieve it all. Or are there gaps? Are there areas in our organization that we just don't have that knowledge or capability or, or, um, or resources to do it? If, you know, if we have 20 things that we really need to go uh, address that we suspect that we need to go address and we want to do you know, into the great details of understanding, Yet, do we know how to use physics of failure modeling? And do we have the material scientist that knows how to deal with adhesives and degradations and UV and different pressures and applications? Do we have the intimate knowledge of our process capability for these key components so that we can uh, align them and build them in an efficient way without much scrap or rework? And so on and so on. What are the things that and this isn't the plan yet, but this is in order to achieve this goal, what do we know? What are we good at? And what works well? And what do we need to know? What do we need? What are the things that we're not quite there yet? And it part of this process is trying to figure out what's the, the challenges that we foresee as an organization trying to develop this particular product. What are the things coming up that will create a need for something that we can do well or we don't and let's try to identify some of those let's see we got uh uh chris tomo i believe uh testing is a detection control map during an fmea yeah it can be which is the standard risk mitigation tool in automotive new develop new process new product development process 
This allows to have a factual justification to make tests. You, discussion is usually around sample size. Yep, I definitely agree with that in test duration. Yeah, FMEA is a good tool, is a lead into what kinds of testing in testing we do or don't do. I'm going to propose a slightly different way to approach that. And FMEA is a tool that supports it, yet it's not, I think, the only place that we can look or that we should look for what testing we should do. Those frequent on the podcast or on the webinar know that I'm, I generally say testing is the last resort. It's expensive and it's fraught with all kinds of trade-offs. And it has to be done well for the information to be really useful for us. So if we have other methods, other means to get to the information we need without doing testing, that's great. I'm about as far away from, we'll just throw it in a chamber and we'll see what we learn uh, kind of person because I, more nine times out of 10, that's a waste of time. But anyway, back to the gaps. This is also, I've also called this the uh, maturity assessment is understand what your organization is good at and how proactive are they and how does it interact and involve each other. And this typically involves doing a handful of, uh, say, eight to 10 interviews with different people across the organization. And what, how do they go about making their decisions? Now, in the context of a particular program is well, what decisions do they see coming up that they need to deal with? And, and that leads us to really the, the next step is what are those decisions? And this is where I really don't see it in the literature very much is how we figure out what we want to do. One of the tenets, and, and I know I've said this for a long time and Carl and I've talked about it quite a bit is that reliability occurs and this is independent whether there's a reliability program or a person or a plan or anything else reliability occurs in each of those decisions that are made across the organization. If, if the management team says, we're going to do this in three weeks and we're going to only spend $10, well, you're going to get a three-week product with made out of 10, you know, made with $10 of effort. It may or may not be all that useful or reliable. Others are going to say, we want to achieve this goal and we're going to invest in it to make sure we do it. We're going to use the right materials. We're going to use the better vendors. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing to, to ensure that we make our, our goal and, and move us towards our vision. Well, those are decisions that people have made in the organization or, or within the constraints imposed on the organization um, to what's the architecture we're going to use? What's the problem we're actually trying to solve? Uh, how does this technology work over time? We make, well, oodles is probably the right term, but we make a lot of decisions, not as a reliability person, uh, the electrical engineer and the designing engineers, the people laying out the products, the, how we manufacture it, those are all decisions that are made as we develop and evolve and create a, a product. Every one of those decisions makes a difference on the eventual reliability, reliability performance of the product. Now, some decisions are more impactful than other ones. Um, some we overlook 
inadvertently as ones that are very important to the performance of our product. Yet the idea with that gap assessment and with the ongoing awareness of the person putting the plan together, often one of us on this call, is to sort out what are those key decisions? What are those important decisions that will really impact the reliability of the, of the product? Are we going with vendor A or vendor B? We know nothing about either one of them, and they have different technologies and different claims of how good they are. We're going to make that decision part on how well, how much do we trust that particular solution? What do we know and don't know about it? How much does it cost? How easy is it to modify or work with? Or what's the business potential of that vendor staying in business? Lots of things go into that decision. Now, if part of that decision is it has to last for 10 years, it has to be reliable enough for our particular uh, objectives, where are you going to get that information? And if that's a key decision that's going to make a huge difference in the performance of our product is clearing up that unknown, well, that would rise in, in my mind to that's a key decision. That's something that the reliability plan should probably address. And it might be a, a literature search or looking at the vendor's data or lots of different ways we can evolve that information or create that information. Yet it doesn't make sense to go do a bunch of reliability activities and hope some of it's useful to inform decisions. Let's go identify those decisions, whether it's selecting a vendor or selecting a material type or selecting an attachment process or creating a, a new manufacturing uh, technique. What are the ones that create, and I like the way it was phrased earlier, I'm trying to blank who said it, is... Uh, you know, what are the most risky things that will derail our ability to achieve the objectives? And some of this is just asking, ask the architect, ask the program manager, ask the senior reliability or the senior mecha mechanical electrical engineers and so on. What are the areas of highest risk? What pieces of information are you missing that would help you make a better decision, that would help you select the appropriate vendors as well. I need to know which one's more reliable out in our application. Okay, that's a question we can actually go help with. Is this material degrade in, in UV? Does this material degrade with the oils and, and pet petrochemicals that we use? Well, that's a question we can answer. And it lots of different ways we go about doing it, but the real fundamental piece of this process is we don't create the plan on our own. We create the plan to create information that will feed into these decision makers' ability to make the right decision. And so the first step is you got to figure out what decisions are, are key or most important or most uh, uh, salient to helping us achieve the overall program. Now, there's so many different decisions that go on, and some of them we can we can address by doing design guidelines, by having derating and stress strength uh, policies, by having how do we select a vendor and what kind of criteria do we look at in setting tolerances under our designs and so on. 
as a reliability professional, and even within many engineering organizations, we'll have a lot of these kinds of tools and techniques available for us that will help inform many decisions. Yet, it won't cover all the ones, and it almost never covers the most important ones. And so the, the, this gap analysis and the set of interviews and this whole process is to identify, well, what are those big decisions that are being made and what information, not what tests they need run, not what activity they need to, ha to happen, is what information do they need in order to improve their ability to make the right decision? to locate this component here, to have a fan or not have a fan, to uh, pick vendor A versus vendor B and so on. And let's see, got another question. How can we effectively predict the reliability of a project product early in product development? Well, the easiest way is just ask your engineering team, how reliable do you think it is? They've got experience, They've they're hired to do this design they've got material science backgrounds they have you know polymer backgrounds they have metals background they have manufacturing backgrounds they have prior history with working with similar technologies leverage that just ask them and ask them so that you get you know uh, what's the probability of it surviving over some period of time how does that compare to our goal and there's a whole technique uh, dealing with this kind of uh, data collection. It's called the Delphi method. And what you do is you ask 10 people and you get a range of answers. And then you say, all right, here's the, why did the highest reliable person or estimate, what did you base that on? And versus the lowest one, what did you base that on? And then feed that back to the rest of the group. And that might inform them as to changing their stuff. And with the Delphi method done, and it's usually done at much larger scales, it usually coalesces on something that's pretty accurate. Uh, it's amazing how well it works. And there's, but that's the easiest, cheapest, quickest way to do it. Let's go ask. It's engineering judgment, and we have it. We use it to make all kinds of decisions all the time. It's also a technique for you to go, well, what is the barrier to this? What are the areas that uh, could throw the, a wrench in that? Those are clues to those key decisions. Good question. Well, there's lots and lots and lots of ways we can uh, predict early in the project what's the reliability of it. Um, the easiest by far is if you're evolving the product from one generation to the next is look at your field performance from the last one. It's a pretty good estimate and to a large degree, but I digress. There's lots of methods to, to use to do that, but there's just a couple. The key piece of this process is that it's not our decisions to do an FMEA or to run this test or to do this estimate. The information that we want to create, in put into the plan to allocate resources and time and energy and samples and everything else to, is to create information to inform these decisions. Because if we inform the decisions such they, they have a higher probability of being correct, meaning that it's supporting achieving the reliability goal, not hindering it, the more likely we're going to achieve the overall objective. 
And so one of these decisions might be how do we very similar to uh, Minchal is talking about is what, how do we know we're on track? How far off are we from our target? So getting estimates along the way, whether through engineering judgment or modeling or, or testing or field data analysis and so on, is a way to inform people, are we there yet or not? And that might be a key decision. How, how, what are our challenges? What, what do we need to address? What, where should our priorities be? And it, so that may fit into informing decision makers is to say, hey, we're there, we're not there. And it's a common uh, decision at some point, usually late in a program, is it reliable enough? Is it is the quality meeting our objectives? Is the, you know, is does the weight meet our requirements? Well, if reliability is one of your requirements and we're measuring it, then we can answer that question. Now, it may be a critical question, decide whether we go to market or not, or it may be this is a low risk thing and we're not too worried about it. Well, put then put your emphasis and resources somewhere else where other major decisions are, are being played out and that you can inform. Now, these decisions all are trade-offs. I don't know of a single organization that only designs a product to be very, 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 very reliable and doesn't worry about cost or anything else. Now, safety, lots of organizations will create products that are very safe and they will, will, they will spend money and allocate resources and so on when they identify something that's not safe to go fix it, to deal with that, to redesign or, or to mitigate or, or eliminate those risks. Very few, if any, do that with reliability. It's always in trade-off. And understanding what's the value of meeting the target and if we're 1% off, well, what's that going to cost us in additional warranty or lost customer satisfaction? Versus if we go over that target, what benefit does it create, if any? And so the idea is just to understand that bigger picture as you're looking through all these decisions is remembering that you're providing information that is in context to all of these other considerations, whether it's time to market or it's time to get ramped up to create enough of this product to get it on the shelf quick enough, or is it uh, customers' expectations and so on. All of those other elements part from within our business so that we end up with a profitable product and product line, or is it in context to what the customer expects? Those all play a factor in all of these decisions, the day-to-day -day decisions and the key decisions, to some extent unconsciously, to some extent very deliberately. And keeping in mind that we're creating reliability-related information that's going to have to play well with these other uh, considerations. And so part of it is, is also informs well, what methods will we select? What you know, if we, I think I had one of my first experiences for reliability was my boss said, "Hey, we need to know if this this product we're developing is going to last for twenty years in the Italian Alps." And I thought, "Great, I like to ski. I'll go to the Italian Alps for twenty years, and I'll let you know." Well, he didn't like that idea, um, and said, "No, you get six months." 
to generate information that we can use along with the customer to understand if this product will last the 20 years in that application. Oh, okay. I didn't even know what accelerated testing was at that moment and very quickly learned about it. But the idea is, is that these things are always in context. So if we do an FMEA, it's not just to do an FMEA. Now, some of you may have contractual obligations to go do an FMEA. I suggest that if you are required to do it, we'll do a really good job, make sure it actually adds value. And if there's no reason to do an FMEA and it wouldn't add value no matter how much time or effort you put into it, well, then don't do it. Just do the bare minimum, check the box and move on. If it adds no value, don't invest in it. If it has the if it's a tool that could really help you and your design team meet the reliability objectives, well then do it and do a really good job at it. The idea is, is that vast majority of programs I've worked with and projects I've worked with is that there's no reason to do an activity or use a particular method unless there's a driving force to generate the information that comes out of that technique or process or tool or test. Way too many times I've seen people, they go do halt and they say, well, of course it failed. It was overstressed and they ignore it. And you just waste it. That's those samples. You wasted those tech times. You wasted that engineering time. You wasted that chamber time. What a waste. If a subtle difference was, oh, I'm looking forward to what you learned in the HALT test, and I need that information because we don't know all the ways this can fail, there's a good case for doing a HALT, which is different than, well, we just always do it, and here's the results. You deal with it if you want to. Hopefully, you can see the difference of how much impact one approach versus the other can have. Okay. Now... We've alluded to that there's lots of ways to estimate reliability, whether early in a program or throughout the program. There's lots of ways to do risk prioritization. FMEA is a great tool for that, yet it's not the only one. Many organizations in the medical industry use hazard analysis. It's a slightly different focus. It's, this, I'd say, a subset of FMEAs, or it's a, a separate method. But the idea is, is that there's lots of ways we can go about doing things. Now, there's the ones that we're familiar with and we're comfortable with, and they may or may not be the right tool. Now, if your organization is really good at doing FMEAs and you need to prioritize, it's something is the program manager saying, I only have $100, where are we going to put this uh, so we learn the most, that we make the biggest impact on the design? Well, an FMEA is probably called for in some regard, and you could use other tools. You could just do a brainstorm and, and not go down and score it, do a formal FMEA process. There's lots of advantages to doing that, but there are other methods. And do, will this work in Northern Italy during the winter? Well, you could fly to Northern Italy during the winter and install your product and see if it works, or you could replicate as best you can the, those conditions, cold temperatures, rockfall on the roads, things like that. 
snow plows going over it and so on. This was a product I worked on. It was installed into a road, into a bridge on a road, basically. And it had to survive in those environments. There's lots of ways we could go about doing that. The idea at this point is once you identify what are the techniques or not the techniques, what are the key decisions? Well, what are the ways that we can actually inform that decision? What are the options that we have? And the, there's a strong bias in almost all of us to use the techniques and methods and test facilities and so on that we have, that we're familiar with. Now, it may or may not be the right thing to do. So I highly encourage that if you're saying, hey, what's the estimate for reliability early in this program? Is do the bit of brainstorming, do a bit of research. What are the 10 different ways I can go about getting this answer? Now, some of them will drop off immediately because they're going to take 10 years to go get an answer, like living in Northern Italy for 20 years, which just, it's a technique, it's a method that we could use to answer that question. It wasn't feasible because the point of decision was only six months away. And so that kind of drew us into accelerated testing. Now, if we would have had a good physics of failure model for the failure mechanisms involved with our product, we could have used the physics of failure models. What we ended up doing was, was running a set of these accelerated tests and then creating those life models so that we didn't have to run tests very often anymore. But one thing here is to battle your bias to you. Well, we have a thermal chamber, so we always do thermal testing. No, only do thermal testing when it's the right thing to do. The right thing is, is to provide the best possible information given all the constraints that you have to face. And a first step of that is brainstorming. Well, what are all the ways we could go about doing this? And I'm not saying that you need to do a, a you know, only use things you've never used before, but what a wonderful way to learn about all these tools and methods and what works and doesn't work. And informing your team is that this isn't the only way we do reliability. We have many, many options and many, many trade-offs and values. Some are less precise, some are more precise, some are more accurate, some are less accurate, some are, are time-consuming, others are quick and easy. And what do we need for this decision? Maybe that quick and easy one is just good enough and will be just fine. And that frees up resources that you can go use somewhere else on a, a different problem that needs a a more accurate or more time-consuming or resource-intensive uh, type approach. But if you only use what you're familiar with, you're probably leaving your best thinking on the table. And, and so it's think through what's available, what other options are there, what ways can we go about doing this? And guard yourself from doing it the way we always do it. That, that's the, the gist of this step in the, uh, in the process. How can we estimate reliability? Uh, there's probably 20 different ways. I'll leave that as a, a tease to you if you can come up with all of those. Not that I know for sure, but I suspect there is. Okay. The last couple steps are 
are more on our people skills. Now, the interviews and the gap assessment, the uh, understanding the vision, uh, working with how we set the requirements, that all takes working with other people and talking to other people. So people skills or soft skills really come into play. But now we're coming up with a, a plan. And we're going and the plan is basically our our bid for resources. Here's how many samples we need. Here's how many you know assets we need. Here's the types of activities that we need. Here's how many people we need to do this, this, and this. Here's guidance for what information we're going to generate and how much it's going to cost us and who's going to actually do it and what are the deadlines and all those details. Well, the very first step is just write a draft. Now we have this long list of ways we could say estimate reliability. Well, which ones get through that gauntlet of all those constraints, all of the factors we need to balance off and which is the best method given our barriers? So the draft is our first take at that. And it's, it's we're gonna do an FMEA, we're gonna run this accelerated test, we're gonna use modeling for this, this, and this, we're gonna do some Monte Carlo or um, Monte Carlo modeling, we're gonna do some finite element analysis on drop ability of this product to withstand drop shocks and so on. Those are all tied to a specific decision or, or more than one decision. In the draft is saying, all right, this key decision is this product ready to ship or not that we need to make on August 5th of next year. We're going to do this, this, and this to create that estimate. And these people are going to do it. Here's the techniques. Here's the methods. Here's the tools we're using. Here's the samples if needed and so on. Write it down. That's our plan. It's a draft and then get it reviewed. Go to the program managers, run across the, the most influential people that have ability to resource this or not resource it, get their acceptance and buy-in and input and, and, and updates and changes that they would like to make and go to those people that need to make those decisions. If I do this, if I create this reliability estimate using this approach and it will have this cost, but it also have this accuracy or this, you know, uh, uh, ability to estimate the capability to estimate our future performance and so on. Is that good enough? Is that going to meet your needs to make a good decision? And then it's a discussion. Oh, no, that's not adequate. I need a, a better estimate than that. Well, how much money do you have? <laughs> It's how much resources do you have? How many samples do, can you commit to this? If you really need to know the difference between 95% reliable at two years versus 97% reliable at two years, well, here's some quick math. We're going to need another 38 samples for, for this particular approach. Now, there are other approaches, but they have trade-offs. Let's talk about it. But the focus is on, will this create the information that will be adequate for you to make a better decision? Is it something you will use? Is it something that's meaningful to you? Will you accept it? Those are all bits and pieces of that discussion. And so the idea is, is that the plan is not what we're going to do to them. The plan is what we're going to do for them. And uh, in creating information we don't have right now so that they have the information to make a decision. And 
so a natural step of that is, well, here's the draft, what we'd like to do, that we think will solve those problems and create that information. Is that appropriate for what you need? Is that adequate for what you need? And so on. And then it's within, again, within all the constraints that we have. Then go back to the drawing board and adjust and review and adjust. And the intent here is to get the acceptance when the support so that you have the funding and budget to actually do what they need done. But also that when you deliver the, say, the results from the whole process that you went through with their new prototype is that they actually use it. It's not just stacked up in the corner is going, oh, of course it failed. So part of it's training, part of it's, this is why we're using this process because you want to know how it could fail in because it's a new technology how can it fail what do we need to do to make it better well you know kirk and i would jump on that going well that's that's halt that's what that's made to do and so it might be a little bit of training it might be a new process it might be a variant of using halt but some called something else or use some other technique to get to there but the idea is is that it's tied to that that person or that team wanted to know how it could fail. It's not go do halt and then I'll figure out whether to use that answer or not. It's we want to create information to inform those decisions. So reviewing that with those key decision makers is a way to get that acceptance and identify gaps of training and understanding of what these tools and techniques can do and what they can't do. And so this part of the process never ends. As the plan evolves, as we learn things, as new risks become apparent and so on, we're constantly updating uh, the, the drafts of the plan and getting buy-in and getting acceptance for it and then getting the funds and, and resources to go actually do it. It's an evolutionary process. There's no doubt about it. And it's very important that you talk to those people that need to make those decisions so that when you walk in and say, here's your information, they don't look at you like, well, I don't know what to do with this. You know, I wasn't expecting this. You want just the opposite, that they're looking for it and helping you to generate this information in a very active way. Then go do it, make it happen. You know, that and, and the, the big part of this process is this is finally we get to go do something, right? We get to run the calculations. We get to do the analysis. We get to break things in a chamber, all kinds of fun, happy stuff. We got to execute it well so that we create the highest quality results that we can given our, our plan our, and what we've got acceptance to go do and resources to go do. And we need to communicate it well. We need to, to, enable other people to use this information so that they can make the better decisions, right? Now, we may be part of some of those decisions, but generally we're not, in my experience. We bring to the table a set of expertise as how do we generate this kind of content or this material, or this information, or these insights? Yet somebody else is going to choose which vendor we go to. We may have an input to it. Yet 
connecting that input to what's important to those decision makers is the trick. That's the process of reliability engineering. The process, the plan will continue to evolve and, you know, chamber will go down or we can't get quite as many samples as we thought we had, or there's a, a, a new technology that we need to use that we didn't anticipate or on and on and on things will happen. And so it's stepping back to the vision and goal to make sure we're on target. And what are the key decisions now? And it, that part of this process just iterates and iterates until you're done, until the product's out and successful. And the, the final question with this is that each and every one of those activities, each type of method that we choose to do, if it's creating the, the, the information that the decision makers need to make a vendor A, vendor B decision and make the right decision in given all the context, that has value. And a many of, you know, I think it was my very first webinar was then we need to estimate it. We need to estimate that value and understand that value. And our focus is on which things make the biggest difference. And that's value. After you deliver the report or you get the information to them, you have that final discussion, ask them, what is this worth to you? And I had one program manager say, oh, I can sleep better at night. All right. That's nice, but what's that worth to you? How much time does that save you? How much mental activity does that save you? How many, you know, how do you quantify that? And there's lots of techniques for doing that. And there's a, a whole webinar on all kinds of different ways to go about doing that. So part of this process is to focus on decisions and adding value to improve the ability of those decisions to enable this act this organization to achieve the reliability goals and vision. Tracking and, and quantifying the value added is just a great opportunity to say, this is what this is worth. This is why we spent all this time and effort and money creating a reliability plan and doing all this stuff. If it has no value, we don't need to do it. If it adds a lot of value, and I suspect if you do this well, it'll add tremendous amount of value, is you should get credit for it. And, and the team should take pride in that they actually, you know, did the hard stuff to go figure out how these this information that they needed in order for them to achieve their objectives. Getting a product to weigh less than five pounds is easy. Don't say that to a mechanical engineer. But the idea is, is that we can weigh it every day. And is it reliable? Well, that's a bit trickier. And so hopefully this process provides a structure or format for you to take a look at how do you go about doing it? And I, some of the comments and questions seem to align that this would actually probably help. And so I really hope so, that it reinforces what I hope you're already doing and that it gives you a, a structure or framework to think through some of this stuff. And of course, I'd love to hear from you what's working or not working and so on. And so I'm gonna uh, stay on the line and answer any questions. If there's any at this point, I know we're coming up at the top, they are. And so I know folks will be 
as Chris would say, spearing off to the, the their next activity. So with that, thanks for attending and hopefully you go add some value. Think about how you what you're doing actually makes a difference. Thank you.